Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Bless God. Did anybody have anything during worship that you saw or wanted to share? I just kept thinking how faithful he is to his children. Because we can go back to Genesis and we can see Noah where there are 70 nations. And we can come today and there's still 70 nations. And it just, it's so impressed upon my heart how much he loves us. And how much he wants fellowship with us. Not just with us, but through us to reach those who have never seen him. And each one of us here have an opportunity to be able to share the gospel with those around us and bring life eternal to them as well. Amen. Amen. So this week we are uh, in the portion of Pinchas or Phineas, and we're really on part three of an impromptu series that we began two weeks ago. And it began when we were talking about the uh, God's covenant promise to Aaron and his descendants, the covenant of salt for a priesthood that would extend from generation to generation. And as we've discussed that, um, we've also been running through the implications that that brings with regard to the temple and to sacrifices, because those are very much needed understandings. So today we're going to talk a little bit more about the temple, but it's really going to be an interweaving of the concepts of uh, the Messiah, the temple, and uh, the priesthood. So one of the verses that we talked about a couple weeks ago was from Jeremiah 33. And I thought about just reading a small section of this, but I wanted to start at the beginning of it here in verse 14. The context of this passage is the messianic era, and it speaks of this righteous branch that God is going to raise up. And that theme of the branch, I think, is going to flow through today's message. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David my servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. 
So we spoke about this two weeks ago, that it was written at a time when the temple was not standing. This was during the exile, the Babylonian exile. But it was looking forward to a day when the temple would be established, even a time when God would have fulfilled his promise that he made to Judah and Israel. And the scripture here speaks of it being a time that they dwell in peace. And that time of dwelling in peace and with the branch of David that reigns is speaking of the messianic era. Now, if you haven't heard the message from two weeks ago, I do encourage you to go back and, and listen to that because we go into a lot of detail about God's pro promises to Aaron and the priesthood. And then at the end of that discussion, uh, we had a couple of questions posed to us, which I thought were well worth taking time to go into and to explore. And one of the questions was, how is this relevant to me if I'm never going to bring sacrifices? And then secondly, the priest, is, the priest wouldn't offer sacrifices anymore, would they? Because Yeshua is the one sacrifice for all. So those are, are questions that come up when we talk about the temple, talk about sacrifices, especially within the aspect of the background of Christian theology. And so we need to have an answer to that. Last week we talked a little bit about the answer to Yeshua being the one sacrifice for all and how does his death work as an atonement. And what we discussed at a, very briefly was that Yeshua is not a literal Levitical sacrifice, that his blood is effective in the heavenly temple, not the earthly temple, just as his priesthood officiates in the heavenly temple, and he is not able to serve in the earthly temple because he is not of the descendants of Aaron. He's of the tribe of Judah. We also talked about how the apostles continued to worship in the temple and they continued to bring sacrifices even many years after the death and resurrection of Yeshua. And we discussed how, how it could be possible that they could understand that Yeshua's atonement was an atonement that was apart from and separate from the Levitical sacrifice atonements. Because they understood that Yeshua's atonement is better, that his blood is better, and the priesthood he has is better. The temple he serves in is better. Everything is better and operates in a different dimension than the earthly. But they still saw him and understood him as being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They still saw him as an atonement just for an entirely different realm because he could take away sins. He could make those who want to draw near perfect. He could cleanse the spirit and conscience and give everlasting life, none of which could be done through the Levitical sacrifices. Even though the Levitical sacrifices have purpose on the earth from the aspect of cleansing the flesh and of drawing near to God. It's a completely different dimension. So his, his atonement is better, and his is through a mechanism known as the death of the righteous, which brings atonement for the sins of the nation. So we talked a little bit about the death of the righteous last week, and we might touch on that a little bit here and there today, but the concept is that suffering comes from sin, 
And so then suffering actually brings an atonement to sin. And when the righteous suffer, they don't suffer for their own sins, but rather they suffer for the sins of others, taking on the sins of others so that they might gain favor before the Lord that can be extended to those. So when we look at Yeshua, the one who was perfectly righteous, the one who suffered more and more unjustly than any other man throughout history, when that dynamic happened, he merited more favor and more grace to be poured out for all those in need than anyone else ever could, enough that it would be for all generations past and present, and not just the nation of Israel, but for all nations, the whole world. And so, so that's the concept of Yeshua's sacrifice and the atonement that he brings. And so this week we're going to talk some more about, again, I said that as the temple and the restoration that is enacted through the temple. Before we get into there, we're going to go ahead and jump into the portion, and then we're going to have that lead into discussions around the temple. So we'll start in Numbers 25, verse 6, which is actually at the end of last week's portion. At the end of last week's portion, the children of Israel had come. Um, they had won great victories, and now they had come and committed harlotry with the Moabites and Midianites as they were getting ready to enter into the land of Israel. And as they were, were doing that, God was getting ready to pour out his wrath upon, upon the children of Israel and upon their leaders. And what happens here, during this time that the harlotry and, and idolatry is occurring, Numbers 25, 6, the scripture says, Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back, back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. So this jealousy that he was expressing is the Hebrew word kana, which can be translated as jealous or zealous. Within the aspect of jealousy, it's not this human kind of jealousy where it's envious, but rather it is... Um, it's better expressed really with zealous, zealousness, where you are fiercely defending something that is important to you. So if God is jealous for his covenant, he is really zealous for the relationship that that covenant protects. And so he's zealous for the commitment of his covenant partner. 
And when his covenant partner strays, he is zealous to bring them back to restore that which was lost. He's not jealous of how good the other thing that the, that the person fled to. He's not jealous of the idols. He's not jealous of those things. No, he's jealous for his covenant partner. And so now when Phineas comes, he is acting with God's zealousness for the people so that the people would turn back to God and have the relationship restored. And that is why he's receiving a covenant of peace, because his actions are seeking to restore peace to the relationship that had been broken. And he's not doing it according to what he deems to be God's righteousness or who deserves to die, who should be smited, but rather he is connecting with the heart of God and now moving as God's agent to accomplish God's will, not seeking to accomplish Phineas's will or to uplift the name of Phineas, but to make God's name great, to restore relationship. And that's really, that's really what a good zealot does. A good zealot acts on behalf of God as God's agent for God's purposes. And so, and then we've talked about this in the past, we'll talk about it a little bit today. Yeshua was a good zealot. He was a good zealot because he was zealous for God, zealous for calling the people to repent such that they might have their relationship restored. And the true zealot is one, the sages say, who acts as an utterly selfless individual concerned only about what God desires. And we know that's how Yeshua operated. He did only what he saw the Father doing. And he came to do the will of the Father and to destroy the works of the evil one, to set people free. Moses also was one who was zealous for God and acted as an agent of God, expressing anger at times, even so that God would not wipe out the entire people. So here, like, let me back up just a little bit. Like with the story of Phineas, what happens is while everything is transpiring with the children of Israel and they're committing their harlotry, God tells Moses to take all the leaders of the people. This is in Numbers 25, just a few verses before where we, where we began to read. He says, take all the leaders of the people Hang them before the Lord against the sun, and the flaring wrath of the Lord will withdraw from Israel. So it's a little unclear if he's saying take all the leaders and hang them, or if he's saying take all the people who have committed the idolatry and hang them. We know that a plague has gone forth, but what Moses said to the judges of Israel, is he said, let each man kill his men who were attached to Baal Peor. So many were about to die through the judgment that had just come. And that's when Phineas rises up and he goes and he strikes down one of the leaders who was brazenly committing harlotry before the children of Israel. And, and when the leader does that, he's leading others to do the same. So Phineas goes and strikes him down. And when he strikes him down, the plague is checked and the judgment is halted. So the judgment that came upon the children of Israel was less than what God was going to pour out on it. So really, Phineas stood in the gap and lessened what was going to happen 
yet still communicating God's displeasure at what was going on. So there's a way of saying it where God in his might and his power and his anger, when bringing his wrath, would wipe out the entire people. But God also desires mercy over justice, but he desires justice and repentance. So how does the message get communicated that causes the people to return without the people all getting wiped out? Well, one comes and stands in the gap acting as an agent of God to express God's anger. And once that is done, once the message is across, then God's anger relents as a result of that. So it's a, it's a neat concept expressed here in Phineas. It's also what happened with Moses at the sin of the golden calf. God's going to, he says, stand aside. I'm going to wipe out this entire people. Moses intercedes. He comes down the mountain and he sees what's going on and his anger rises up. Well, Moses had just told God, don't be angry. Now Moses goes down and gets mad. Well, he's now acting in accordance with God's anger. He smashes the tablets which was an intercessory action whereby, in a way, the tablets were broken so that the people wouldn't be. And then he comes down, he grinds the idol, has them drink those, those waters. And then the Levites come and they act as agents to go and execute justice against those who had uh, sinned grievously. After that, Moses says, now, with this anger expressed, with this smaller dose than what God would have poured out, and now you understand the gravity of your sin, I'm going to go and intercede for you. So Moses acted zealously for God for the restoration of the covenant. Yeshua also, in a way, expressed God's anger when he cleared the temple, when he drove out the money changers. And then also Yeshua acted as an intercessor when he received upon himself God's wrath, such that grace could be built up and poured out to those who didn't have any merit in their own. And just as Yeshua received God's anger and wrath poured out on him through the suffering of the righteous, in the same, same manner, the temple of God is destroyed in place of the people. So when the people have strayed from God to the point that they are ready for destruction, God instead strikes down the temple in their place and sends the people into exile. It's not that God is canceling the temple. It's that he is having a mercy on the people and taking a substitute in their place. Knowing that in the place of exile, the children of Israel will repent and God can bring them back to the land and bring restoration. Now, I mentioned Yeshua, in his anger, cleared the temple. Well, that, that's our gospel reading this week, so let's, let's turn to John 2, starting in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for us? Or do you show us for doing these things? Yeshua answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Yeshua had spoken. Okay, so Yeshua was acting zealously and driving zealously for God's house when he drove out the money changers. And that's when they said that he remembered, the, the disciples remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. That was from a scripture in Psalm 69. But when Yeshua was coming in and cleansing the temple, he had a message for the people that uh, we kind of saw a little bit here, but in this is also recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And specifically in Mark, I'll just pull from there, the, the verse that was quoted in Mark eleven seventeen. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And that corresponds to his comments about making it a, a place of merchant and goods and trade. But with this, Yeshua was quoting from two passages from the prophets and addressing two issues that were taking place in the temple. One, he says that you have, that God said, you should, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And the second was saying, it shall be, you've made it into a den of robbers. In Isaiah 56, 6 through 7, the scripture says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And then secondly, for the den of robbers, that comes from Jeremiah 7, 8 through 11. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So Yeshua is rebuking them for preventing the Gentiles from coming and worshiping there at the temple. And he's also rebuking them for coming and performing the service of the temple with unclean hands essentially hands that are stained with blood, that are filled with iniquity, as opposed to coming in a state of repentance, in a state of purity before the Lord. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when this occurs is at the time of the triumphal entry. It's just, it's in the, just a few days before Yeshua is going to be crucified, die, and be resurrected. And he comes in, and he displays zeal for God's house because he is appalled 
that it is not the way that God had desired, that the people are not serving God from a pure heart, and that they are not making this a place for all nations to be able to come and worship. And he quotes scripture to say that specifically, saying that the nations will come, all nations will be able to come to his house and worship before him and to offer sacrifices, and that those sacrifices will be acceptable upon his altar. If Yeshua is about to do away with the temple such that it is illegitimate and the service there is no longer valid, why on earth does he care about whether it's being upheld or whether it's a place for the Gentiles to be able to come and worship and bring sacrifices that are acceptable to God? Because at that point, does it even matter? It's almost done if we believe that the sacrifice of Yeshua did away with the temple worship. But yet zeal for God's temple to be a house of prayer for all nations, for the sacrifices of all nations to be acceptable, was upon Yeshua. And it wasn't just for three days. So if we think the temple was done away with, or the sacrifice was done away with, then we might have a challenge to our understanding that we need to try to address. And part of that challenge, we, I think what we need to do is say, well, we, just as we need to understand the sacrifices to know how they differ from Yeshua, both in the aspect of what they accomplish on the earth versus what Yeshua accomplishes in the heavens, so too we need to understand what the temple on the earth does and the restoration that it brings. Because God has a purpose for the temple, even from the very beginning. If you go back to the garden, before Adam and Eve had even sinned, God planted a garden in the, in the, planted a garden in Eden. And the garden was the first form of the temple on the earth. It was a place that was enclosed on three sides, open to the east. He placed Adam and Eve in there to serve as ministers to the Lord, and God's presence walked within it. It was the place of God's dwelling on the earth. But Adam and Eve hadn't sinned. So weren't they fit vessels to be a house of the Lord? Why did we need a house of the Lord on the earth, even at that time? And then another question is, why after the millennial reign, after all things have been restored, and God's presence comes fully onto the earth, is there no need for a temple? So there's a temple needed at the beginning. There's not a temple needed at the end because God and the Lamb are the temple. So why was the temple even here in the first place? And it's because God placed man in it to work and to serve, to have close relationship with him, and then to carry forth that relationship to all the earth and subdue it. Wasn't that the original command? Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the whole earth. What does subduing the whole earth look like? It looks like God's presence going forth across the whole earth and the knowledge of, the, of God extending from the place of his sanctuary throughout the entire thing. To all nations, as it were, even though all nations didn't really yet exist at that time. They were all contained within Adam and Eve and would be their future offspring. But it was for, for making the earth a, habitable, a place that was habitable for God.
to dwell throughout the entire thing. And that's what's accomplished in the Messianic era. Yeshua comes back at his second coming to a world that is in disarray, to a world where the Antichrist is running amok and sin is rampant. And he comes as a covenant of peace, bringing God's wrath on the earth to bring a full restoration. And once he comes, we know that he will set up his kingship in Jerusalem. The Torah will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem to cover all the ends of the earth. It's part of the restoration process. And in the book of Ezekiel, it speaks about the servant of David coming and acting as the prince at the time of the third temple. The third temple standing and operating during the messianic era as an aspect of drawing near to God on earth and as an agent of restoration in all of the earth. Just as the temple would, would have been needed with Adam and Eve in a time when there was no sin, right, through the garden and God's presence, so too the temple has a purpose in the messianic era. Now in the world to come, after the restoration of all things, and the earth is fully a habitation of God, there's no need for it because God and the Lamb are the temple. Now, so the temple serves as a place of intercession and atonement in this world, not just for the Jewish people, but for all nations. In Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, actually, I think I kind of already quoted this, but let's read it. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So again, this is speaking at the end of the days. And they will go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. The house of the God of Jacob is the temple which is on the mountain of the Lord. And from there, that's where the word of the Lord goes out. Now, throughout time, the nations have been at war with the Jewish people and at war with the temple, right? When they come in to destroy Jerusalem, the temple has been destroyed twice now. Now, after the destruction of the second temple, this is in the early third century, so about 200 years after the death and resurrection of Yeshua, <clears throat> Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi said, if the nations of the world had known how good the temple was for them, they would have surrounded it with armed forces to protect it. Interestingly enough. But the world doesn't recognize that God gave the covenant to the Jewish people so that they would be a blessing to all the nations, so they could be agents of restoration in this world, and that the temple service 
would be a major part of that restoration. Or perhaps it is that the, the enemy of this world does know that, and that's why he prompts the nations to go against the Jewish people and against the temple to destroy it. Right? Because it is the scheme of the Antichrist to do away with the Jewish people, to do away with God's Torah, to do away with the Sabbath, to do away with the temple. But in first Kings in, in first Kings eight, forty one through forty three, we have another scripture that upholds the idea that the temple the house of God is to be a blessing for all the nations. Similar in parallel to what we read to Isaiah earlier, but here in 1 Kings eight forty one, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, toward the temple, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, and do as, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So here's Solomon interceding for the nations that the temple would be a place of blessing for them, even as they seek to draw near to God and have their prayers heard. In this week's portion in Numbers 29, the appointed times of the Lord are being reiterated along with all the sacrifices and offerings that are brought at that time. And in Numbers 29, the offerings that are made at the time of Sukkot are listed. And each day a different number of bulls are brought, but the sum of all the bulls that are brought is 70. And Suzanne was talking about the 70 nations of the earth and God's faithfulness to all the 70 nations. Well, the sages understood that the 70 bulls offered at Sukkot were intercession for the 70 nations. That God had made a way for the 70 nations to have intercession made for them. And the time of Sukkot is the time of ingathering. It's the season of our joy. It's when God brings back those who have been scattered. And it's also the time of God's dwelling with his people. So when intercession is being made for all 70 nations so they might be gathered in, into the dwelling place of God, we know that the offerings in the temple are made as intercession for the world, for this physical world. Right? They can't do it for the spiritual world. They can't do it for the world to come. But they can make preparation for this world to be a place of God's dwelling and a place for all people who are called by God's name to come and worship before the king as one body. So the temple through the Jewish people is for the benefit of all humanity. So when we look at it from this perspective and see that the, the temple is being a place of intercession and that the sacrifices are brought as an atonement in this world, and it's very much contrasted to the work of Yeshua, it does make us question things of have we gotten it right that the, this idea that the temple should be done away with 
another way of, of thinking about it. If Yeshua was zealous for the temple to be a place of worship for all nations, and he was trying to do away with it, was it really just a matter of convenience? Because God already, his desire was already for people to be able to come and approach him and worship him at the temple. Was it a matter of convenience so they would no longer have to go do that, make the long trek to Jerusalem, buy an expensive animal, come and make the offering? Absolutely not. Because if it really was that the offerings could do what Yeshua has done, such that they needed to be done away with by the work of Yeshua, then really Yeshua's offering is just a matter of convenience. But the offerings on the earth don't do what Yeshua's blood does, and in no way can be replaced by the blood of Yeshua. Another thing to, to think on in this, <clears throat> we know that Yeshua said that not one jot or tittle would fall away from the Torah until all is accomplished. And he says it's easier for heaven and earth to fall away. Now, when we look at the Torah and God's appointed times, we can grab hold of that and we can say, okay, well, we understand, yeah, God's commandments still stand and his appointed times still stand, the Sabbath still stands. But then sometimes we can still have the, the stumbling block that says, but the temple, no, that's done away with and the sacrifices are done away with. If we were to blot that out from the Torah, you're wiping out about 25% of the five books of Moses. Approximately 33% of the book of Exodus is about the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. It's about 75% of Leviticus is about the same. About 20% of numbers. I didn't count anything in, in Deuteronomy because the percent of the Bible that's wiped away doesn't really matter. I'm not trying to say what percent is, but understand that if the temple and sacrifice and priesthood are done away with because of the work of Yeshua, a large part of God's word is done away with in that moment. And that's a lot more than a jot or a tittle. And not all has been accomplished. I know that we want to believe that all has been accomplished in some arenas, but the, the redemption that we experience now is a foretaste of the redemption that is to come. It is a down payment of what is to come. Yes, the new covenant has been inaugurated, but it has not been completed because the exiles have not been brought back. They don't dwell in peace. There's many other things, too, that haven't been completed yet. The restoration is not yet done, but it's coming. There's work to do along the way, and the work that's to be done is still restoration of this world, of people's lives, and a restoration of the covenant relationship between God and his people and all nations. Now, I mentioned earlier some of the things that the Antichrist does, that the enemy does in order to try to stamp out God's plan of restoration, to halt it, to keep it from going forward. And in Daniel 8, verse 11 to 14, The context that's happening here is there's discussion about um, a coming Antichrist 
uh, specifically in this case Antiochus Epiphanes, who is the one who brought destruction at the time of the uh, Hanukkah story, the time of the Maccabees. And it's speaking of the horn that exalts itself. It says, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and will act. it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to him, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Okay, so with this, with the twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings... Okay, so this is talking about at the time of the desolation that occurred under Antiochus Epiphanes, where he set up a, a temple, or a, a statue of Zeus in the holy place when he offered swine on the altar and when he cut off all sacrifices. The word here says that it will be for 2,300 evenings and mornings that the regular sacrifice is done away with. Okay. Now, this regular sacrifice is specifically talking about the Tamid offering. The Tamid offering is spoken of in this week's portion in Numbers 28. <clears throat> now, in Numbers, in Numbers 28, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food, for, my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs a year, a year two, two male lambs a year old without blemish, day by day as a regular offering. This is a, a, as a tamid or a continual offering. The one lamb shall you offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with a quarter of a hen of beaten oil. It is a regular burnt offering, which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hen for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, like the grain offering of the morning, and like its drink offering you shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, so as we read here, this regular offering is made in the morning and in the evening every day. It's made every day. And so in the book of Daniel, when he says that the the regular service will be cut off for 2,300 evenings and mornings. That's talking about 1,150 days, which if you go back and do the math, it turns out to be the time span between when the offering was cut off under Antiochus Epiphanes until it was reinstated by the Maccabees when the, when the temple was rededicated. 
<clears throat> and so that's, uh, that's what the book of Daniel was talking about. But it was talking about how the regular sac- sacrifice would be cut off and the desolation would take place. But there would be a restoration that would come. That's also a picture of the, the desolation that comes through the Antichrist at the end of, at the end of this age before, before the coming of Messiah. It will be a similar scenario where the abomination of desolation occurs and the sacrifice is cut off. Again, once again, the work of the Antichrist is to do away with the temple service, not the work of Messiah. Okay? The work of Messiah, the expectation of the Messiah is that he's going to come, he's going to rebuild the temple, he's going to turn people back to covenant faithfulness to God. So when we say that Yeshua did away with the temple, we have to ask the question, are we saying that the Messiah fulfills the work of the Antichrist or the work of the Messiah? I'll let you chew on that one, but it's a big question. Okay. Now, this Tamid offering that is brought, it's a remembrance of the sacrifice at Sinai. It is bookends for all the sacrifices made every day. God calls it a pleasing aroma and the food of his fires. So there's the first one that's brought in the morning. Then all the other sacrifices of the day take place. And then you have another sacrifice in the afternoon that closes up the day. It is an offering that is uh, seen as one that is brings unity within Israel because the, the funds used to purchase these offerings are the half shekel, half shekel tax paid by all the people in Israel. All the males 20 years old and up. So all have a part in the offering itself. And it's continuously offered, bringing continual connection with God and serving as a remembrance of the covenant. I've even heard some say it's a remembrance of the offering of Isaac, the binding of Isaac. Now the times of the offering for the Tamid are at nine in the morning and three in the afternoon approximately. In fact, um, I have something here. Nice little graphic to be excited about. So the Tamid offering happens in the morning and in the evening along this timeline, generally happens around 9 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And if you'll recall, 9 o'clock in the morning is the time in which Yeshua was placed upon the cross. And he stayed on the cross until the time of the afternoon offering when he yielded up his spirit. So Yeshua was being placed in connection with this Tamid offering. right? We've, we've spoken before about how we can find pictures of the work of Yeshua in all of the sacrifices because they're all giving revelation of the work, the atonement, and the restoration that he brings. It's just giving a shadow, an earthly shadow of the heavenly spiritual reality of his work. So too, the Tamid offering offered in the morning and the evening is a remembrance of Yeshua on the cross before the Father, a remembrance of what he did to bring atonement for the children of Israel. Now, I may have gone to this a little early. We'll, we'll come back to it. Um, scripture likens people, the community, 
and even Yeshua himself to the temple. Right? We read that earlier in Yeshua saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the disciples knew after the fact that he was talking about his body. And it wasn't Yeshua talking about the physical temple in that time. However, we can think about even there being a, a bringing back of the temple in the third millennium after the death and resurrection of Yeshua. It having its own resurrection of sorts. But Yeshua says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. In Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews likens Yeshua's flesh to the veil. He says, there's um, we'll, we'll skip it, but Hebrews 10, 19 talks about Yeshua's flesh being likened to the veil. And I know we talked about a couple weeks ago, Paul speaking about how our body is a temple. Right? We are a temple of the living God. And he talks about even the community being living stones fitted together and fashioned as a temple unto the Lord. There are many representations of dwelling places of God, none of which do away with the others. So there's the temple of our body. There's the temple of our community. There's the temple in this physical world in Jerusalem. And there's the heavenly temple. They are all legitimate temples and representations of making a place for God's dwelling within us, right? We are, uh, we're a body that is inhabited by God's spirit, even our own spirit, right? Our spirit being unique and distinct from our physical flesh, but yet the two being one. God's spirit inhabited the, tab the tabernacle, the Mishkan, and even the first temple. And the book of Ezekiel says that his presence will inhabit the third temple. But so that's a picture of these, uh, the temple. Additionally, the, the Tamid offering we we're talking about is offered twice a day. As I said, it's, it's offered here morning and afternoon. If we were to look at it on how it happens day after day, because it did happen day after day, we see here in this graphic, the, the offerings come as a cluster. You have the morning and the evening, and then you have the long break of the night. And you have the morning and the evening, followed by a long break, morning and evening, long break. Our heartbeat is the same. This is the, an EKG overlaid with the offerings in the temple. I didn't make this up. I just graphed it and stretched it. The EKG is an exact picture our heart, the heartbeat of us that causes the blood of life to flow through our veins beats on the same rhythm that the Tamid offering occurs in the temple. The Tamid offering being a remembrance of the blood of Yeshua, which is life to the whole earth. Okay? The temple offerings are the heartbeat of the world. When the heartbeat of the world is not taking place, the earth is dying. When the temple is in place and the heartbeat, the intercession, and the remembrance of the work Yeshua is taking place, restoration is flowing through the world. But that's cut off right now in this physical world. Now the blood of Yeshua still speaks and operates in the heavenly, bringing everlasting life, bringing us into God's presence. And we are agents of reconciliation, bringing restoration on this earth. 
but all the more when the full design of God in this earth is taking place. How much more will that restoration be accelerated? And that's one of the things too. All this, that, the aspect of blood, the blood flowing through us is for life. The blood poured out on the altar through the sacrifices is about the life. The blood of Yeshua is about the life. His death accomplished a purpose, and that purpose was to bring forth life. The death of the animal during the sacrifice is not so an animal dies, it's so that the life of that animal comes forth to serve a purpose, which brings the life of the one bringing the offering into the presence of God. The offerings are about life. The service in the temple is about life. And it's about restoration. And when Yeshua returns, and the temple is either rebuilt or rededicated, you will have the righteous king sitting on the throne with the Levitical priesthood that God has made a perpetual covenant with, performing this service of life in the place of God's dwelling, making ready a world for the full restoration and God's presence in this place. And it comes through the work of Yeshua. It can't be accomplished without the work of Yeshua, without God raising up the branch that had been promised to come and bring the restoration. There's When we read earlier uh, in Jeremiah 33 about God raising up a righteous branch, the Hebrew word is semach, okay? And that word is used multiple times. Uh, it's used in Zechariah 6, 12 through 13. Now, the context in which this passage is written is the time when the temple has been destroyed, but a second temple is coming. Okay? But this passage applies not just to the second temple coming, but it, comes, it also applies to the third temple because of the invoking here of the branch. And say to, them, say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the, build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. So he's talking about a coming day when the temple is restored by the branch. The branch being this righteous one that comes forth from David. In Isaiah 4, 2 through 3, Scripture says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So when the branch, when the Samach is mentioned in relation to a person, it's in the context of the exile coming to an end of the king sitting on the throne and bringing peace to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
and in Isaiah 11, 1 through 4. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." So even here, it's speaking about this, this branch. In this case, the, the, the word for branch is actually netzer. So those are the two common words used for the branches, the tzemach and the netzer. In fact, Nazareth is essentially branch town. You know, and that's where Yeshua grew up, the branch who is going to come forth and be the one God raised up to be the one who brings restoration, to sit as king on the throne and to have the word of the Lord go forth from Jerusalem. And it says, when he comes, he strikes the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Here he is coming as the agent of God to bring, to act zealously for the restoration and bring about the restoration. And as Zechariah said, part of that is the rebuilding of the temple and having, taking back up the call that was given to Adam to, to subdue the whole earth and to have the glory of God fill the entire earth. And lastly, I think this is a fitting kind of wrap up to this topic is in Numbers 27, 15 to 23, Moses is told that he's not going to go into the land that he needs to... Um, he needs to go up to the mountaintop, look across the land, but then be gathered into his fathers, that he's going to die, not enter into the land. <clears throat> but Moses speaks to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may, may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. Well, Moses is a picture of the former Redeemer. Yeshua is the latter Redeemer. And Yehoshua who came as Moses' Moses' successor to lead the children of Israel into the promised land is a clear picture of the branch being raised up to bring the the nation of Israel and even all nations who attach themselves to God through him into the everlasting life, into the fullness of the promise of the covenant. And Yeshua comes as that one raised up by God 
to do the work of God, being zealous for the word of the Lord and for his people and the covenant. And he will establish it and he will accomplish, accomplish it. And we will see all things renewed as we see in the book of Revelation. Amen. Did anybody have anything that you wanted to share? I'm not disagreeing with anything you said, but I just wanted to add something to it. You know the word uh, uh, Nazareth, Nancyer, from the root Nancyer. Uh-huh. You know, most people translate it as branch. But you know, in the, if you go back and look at the knot, there's many instances where it's used as offshoot of the root, which would, it's different, you know, to be grafted in, you're part of the original root. I just thought I'd mention that. Yeah. I don't know if you ever heard that before. I feel but like I have, but maybe there. not. I, but it's, uh, I, I do want to look deeper into it. Thank you for sharing that. The, the question I have too, for, and you have to explain this in a very simple way for us old people. The, our brains don't function right, but I went to the uh, Red Heifer group, you know, and they, when they came to Houston and talked about the restoring the temple and the sacrifices, and I thought there was a lot of confusion. Now, it, what would be your uh, view exactly of how Christians and Messianic, Messianics should view the restoration of the temple and the sacrifices? Okay. I think with that one, it's a, it's a great question because there's a complication in it. Right, because if we hold to the Christian view that the sacrifices are done away with and actually an affront and abomination, then you would need to reject the temple and and its construction and any sacrifices that are going on within it. Now, I know there's various uh, ideas on eschatology, but our understanding is that the temple would be rebuilt that it would be operating at the time of the Antichrist, he would come, bring about the abomination of desolation within the temple, and cut off the sacrifices, proclaim himself to be God. And it would be similar to what's taken place with Antiochus Epiphanes. And, And then from there, desolation is occurring until the return of Yeshua when he would actually either rebuild the temple or rededicate it such that the proper priesthood is put in place, just as uh, the book of Isaiah talks about the exiles being brought forth, and he would take even from the exiles priests and Levites to minister to him, so that then the proper, pure worship would be taking place under the reign of Yeshua the Messiah. So when it comes to the offerings being made in the temple, prior to that, I think we're going to have to have discernment as to what's taking place in Israel, what's, the, what's, what's actually happening. Because if we have it to where anyone who's coming and making offerings is the Antichrist, then we might actually get a little confused with the restoration of the temple under Yeshua. So I, I think that it's going to be something where we have to be aware of possibilities of how things are going to play out and have discernment by the Spirit of what we should actually be doing. So I'm sorry that's not a really good concrete answer because I can't say, oh, well, we should fully embrace it and run forward with it no matter what is taking place. Great sermon. 
gave me a lot of answers that I really needed to do. I, I also just wanted to say that um, my heart's desire uh, and the ministry that we have with God's rest is to bring people who are believers who do not um, obey the fourth commandment and, and look at the Sabbath as a very special day and that uh, from Genesis to Revelation, there is nothing that has been done away with. It's all there for a reason. And people who say to me, well, how can you trust the Bible because there's so many versions and, you know, immediately they talk about King James and how he, you know. The big picture is that the Bible is a love letter to those who believe in him and, and in his son. It is a love letter to us and when I say to that to the people, they go, how can you say that? I mean, God did away with, you know, and to explain to them that God loved his children enough that he did not want them to be pulled into sin. Um, that's a whole other thing. But, but just to have believers realize that that whole book, uh, and, and so much, it's what you've just been talking about. There is nothing that is done away with. It's all there for a reason. And if I don't understand that, then it's my responsibility to engage in asking questions and, you know, having someone that I trust talk about that or meeting, meeting with other believers and looking at what does that say in the Hebrew? What does that say in the Greek? Mm -hmm. You know, it if we seek him with all our heart, we will find him. And, and just to fill a square on one day a week or two days a week is, is not going to get us where we need to be. You know, and, and yeah. I just thank you for Amen. answering some of the questions that I've had. Thank Amen. you. Thank you. Anyone else? I do have to say, two weeks ago when I started this, I, it was not planned to be any kind of series, and I was really trying hard not to talk about any of this. I mean, I, really, I, you know, I was like, okay, what else can I talk about? Because I don't want, you know, there's there's aspects where I can, I can be like, um, I don't want to fight. I don't want to argue. Um, I want to do what matters. I want to talk about what is going to make an impact in our lives such that we love well, such that we transform the world. And, and ultimately, God's Word transforms us so that we can transform the world. So we need to study His Word. We need to understand. We need to press into those things. And as we do it, we have to say, what's it all for? Right? In other words, like, or, or, or let's ask this, what are we fighting for? Okay? That question can be thought of in two ways. Is why are we fighting over things? Like, what's, what's, a, what's fighting accomplishing? Or what is it we're fighting for? Like, what is it we're really believing in and contending for to see happen? And if we let the fighting get in the way of the good fighting, then we've gotten off. 
But if through the discussion, if through the learning, if through the wrestling, we're actually being refined and built up to be better warriors for what we're truly fighting for, then we can actually go out as the good zealot who's doing the will of the Lord, not the will according to what Chris Franklin says, right? <laughs> um, and so that's, we always need to be pulling ourselves back to that of like, what am I really doing? How is my heart being shaped? Is it being hardened or is it being softened? Is it being refined or corrupted? And we can, we have, we have to, we have to walk that, we have to walk that line and really press in to let God transform us with His love, with His word, with His truth at every step along the way. Anyone else? All right, let's pray. Father, we bless you and we thank you. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the restoration that you're bringing. And Lord, thank you that you are faithful to fulfill all your promises. Thank you for Yeshua, the one whom you have raised up to rule and to reign. Thank you for all that he has accomplished and all that he will accomplish, or that he will accomplish. Lord, uh, I ask that you minister to us. Help us, Lord, to go out as agents of reconciliation, as those who operate in peace, acting according to your will, your heart, and your desire. We give you glory and thanks in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.